ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. This week, Sarah and I are bringing you conversations from the Pacific, from Fiji and Papua New Guinea. While I was in Suva, I was invited to the home of Kaliopati Tavala, who's a former diplomat and foreign minister of Fiji. Kaliopati has been posted to cold and rainy capitals in northern Europe, but he comes from a tiny, magically lovely Fijian island off the coast of Viti Levu, the main island. And he grew up hearing myths and legends that explains the dramatically beautiful land he saw all around him. These stories, told of thieves, warlords, children born from plants, princes from far-off islands, and giant serpents that emerged from the deep sea to make chase. And now, as an elder, Kaliopati Tavala is recording and preserving these tales for future generations on his own website called Kaidravuni. Kaliopati invited me out to the back porch of his house, just as a light drizzle of tropical rain was falling all around us. Hello, Kaliopate. Thank you for having me over to your place. You're most welcome, Richard, and nice to see you. Tell me about Dravuni Island, where you were born. What is the island like? It's a beautiful island, not far from here, from Suva. Sandy beaches with the rocky points. It's my paradise. Just one village, and that's where I was born. How did you spend your time as a boy growing up in this paradise? Uh, Well, growing up in the village, you get to enjoy the scenery, swimming in the blue sea, walking to the various points along the sandy beaches, learning to do agriculture. Because uh, when you were a boy growing up in the village, you have to learn the various art required in the village, learning to plant crops, learning to keep vegetation clear, and harvesting, that kind of thing. So you, you've got to learn all this. And apart from that, some of the cultural aspects of uh, village life, mixing of cover and entertaining the elders when they have a, a village meeting. So it's full of activities, full of learnings. It's the best university one can get in the village. Like you say, it's one of those picture postcard places that looks like famously like paradise, particularly to Europeans. But I, I, I suppose if you grow up in it, it's normal, isn't it? It's just what the world is. It was my world at the time, growing up, looking out past the ocean at the horizon. It, it is beautiful. You've got a website where you're preserving the legends, myths and legends you heard as a boy. How did you hear those legends? How were you told them? Yes, growing up in the village in those early days, uh, I I suppose the culture was still very compact. We used to hear the legends being told to us. And I can recall during the night, you would go to a mbure, a thatched house in the village, and we would just lie down on the mats, and an elder would tell us the legends. And I don't think that is something that is being practiced today. Uh, So I was fortunate growing up at the time, listening to the elders telling us the legends that they had learned from their ancestors. But that was uh, a learning process for us uh, as well, to learn the legends, to learn the cultures 
from the elders in the village. People have been living in these islands for three and a half thousand years. That's before the Roman Empire. It's like the same time as the Egyptian Middle Kingdom. It's a very, very long, long time. <laughs> yes. Do we know, have any idea of how old these legends are? Uh, well, people who have written scientific papers, they talk about 2,500 BC. That's a long time ago. Uh, the legends was only the means whereby we can learn things that were happening at the time. And I suppose you, you just have to put meanings to those legends as you grow up. And I'm glad there is now a new science that has been established now. Geomythology, they call it, is trying to put science into the legends and to make them meaningful to people today, learning history. What legends did you hear about how the archipelago of islands that Dravuni is part of was formed? Well, the famous legend is one about Tanovo, the Vu, or the ancestor of the Ono district, and Tautomolau, the Vu from Nambukalevu down south. And is the Vu like an ancestor, but is the Vu a god as well? Uh, Vu is basically an ancestor, but uh, it's a demigod to some extent, and they can do miracle things. <laughs> so you have these two Vu, these two ancestors. Yes. And the story goes that Tanovo, the Vu from the northern part, didn't like Totomolau's mountain. It was higher than his mountain in Ono'ono, and he wanted to bring it down, bring the level down. So he decided to go to Linambukalevu to take some soil and rocks from the top of the mountain so that the level can come down. So one day he went with two baskets made from uh, coconut leaves, and he was in the process of digging out the top soil from the mountain when he was caught by Tautomolau. And Tanovo took up uh, his two baskets and ran. And ran, and, I mean, those demigods, they could do anything. They could walk on sea, they could walk on mountains and all that. So the chase started, and during the chase, some of the, the soil from the, the baskets fell, creating islands as the chase continued. And by then, most of the soil had uh, fallen off. And then Tautomolau felt energetic because uh, the weight has disappeared. So the chase was reversed. Instead of Tautomolau chasing Taunovo, Taunovo now, full of energy, was chasing Tautomolau back. So Tautomolau tried to hide under the sea. But Tarnovo knew and saw what was happening. And at the time, Tarnovo was very thirsty, so he drank the sea dry. So Tautomolau was nowhere to hide. And so at the end of the chase, they made friends and shook hands and departed for their different places where they came from. So that is the legend. Do you know that's blowing my mind? Yes. Because yes. there's a Viking legend that's a lot like Is that. Is that right? A yes. different climate, yes. but similar people who went out and conquered the ocean waves and very well-equipped boats yes. who settled all over the place. Yes. It's, it's just fascinating to me. But again, it, it's all related to nature and uh, the way people relate to nature. And, and that is uh, universal. 
But the gods are stupendous here. They yeah. drink up the whole ocean. That's, well, that's that. what the Viking gods do. <laughs> that's the, the character of the demigod. So as a little boy, was that very real to you when you could stand out and see these islands that were supposed to be plumps of dirt dropped by this Vu, this, this ancestor? Well, growing up, you just take it as, as given that you lived on this island and you're surrounded by reefs and other islands. And would you think of that story when you saw those islands? Well, at the time I was growing up in a very Christian environment, you go to church and people are telling you that God created the universe and everything in it. So when you see those things, islands all over the place and reefs, beautiful sandy beaches and all that, with all the Christianity that you were preached, you just begin to think that, yes, it's all part of creation. And there was a God, or there is a God that created the universe. So you think about that, but there are legends that may explain some of the creation. So I'm glad that now they have formed a new science using legends to explain science. The features of the land that are explained by these stories? Yeah, features of the land and what the legend is saying about the land. You know, the, the legend of Tanovantatomolau is really speaking of an eruption, a volcanic eruption. And you lose the top of the mountain there. Yes, but... It can be quite confusing, though, growing up in a Christian family with the Bible that uh, God created the universe, but at the same time listening to legends. So you begin to marry them together. I mean, it's all part of life and part of uh, creativity. I mentioned the Vikings there and the similarity in that, like... The Pacific Islanders, they had this technology, ocean-going boats. Did you, as part of your duties as a boy, learn how to make canoes and boats? We didn't make canoes on the island because we didn't have big timber. We would ask people down on mainland Kandavu to make the canoes for us. But as a boy, we learned to sail the Thamakawa. The Thamakawa is the the smaller version of the, the Nrua. And Rua is big. My father owned uh, the Macau. Is that the outrigger canoe? It's an outrigger canoe, yes. And part of our learning process growing up in the village is to try to sail the Macau. And how old are you when you learn how to do that? Uh, in my teens. And I recall three of us boys sailing the canoe in the lagoon, tacking the boat. It was all part of the learning process at the time. I know it's fishing involved, but is it great fun as well? A great fun, but a lot of risks as well. I mean, uh, we love fishing on the Macau, but we've had also accidents with the Macau, and we have lost young boys in their sailing expedition to another island. It's part of learning process, but um, we knew at the time there were risks involved as well. Is that traditional knowledge of knowing how to build and sail the, the canoes and the outriggers still present here in Fiji or is it being lost? I think myself and the, the boys who were growing up with them, we were probably the last bunch of boys that learned to sail the Thamakau. If you go to Ndravuni today, there's no Thamakau there. All we have now is the fibres, what they call the fibres, with the outboard motors and all that. So it's a serious business learning to sell these things. As you say, if it goes wrong, yes. you might die. Does it teach you 
like discipline and concentration and leadership, things like that? It certainly did. You learn to concentrate. You learn the art. There are protocol, there are discipline of how you're going to position the boat so that it's not blown over by the wind. A very disciplined. Unfortunately, the boys growing up today are not learning the art of sailing the Macau. It's a beautiful experience, I tell you. <laughs> tell me about the biggest fish you and your brother ever caught, please. It was one time my brother and I, we were tasked to go and harvest some cassava. And whilst harvesting, well, my brother did hear the noise coming from the sea as if someone was slapping the surface of the sea. And he, he said to me, that's a fish trapped and slapping its tail the surface of the sea. So we just left the cassava there and ran down to the beach. And what did you see? We could see a tail of a fish sticking up in the air, flapping like that. And this is the Sangha, the uh, Trevelli. And the head was obviously trapped in two rocks. What had happened, the Trevelli was chasing after a little fish and by jumping over to catch the little fish, got its head trapped between two rocks. And how big was this Trevelli? Oh, I tell you. <laughs> it was big, I mean... Look, it's a huge Trevelli. It's a huge Trevelli. And so we rushed in. My brother went in with his cane knife uh, and chopped the head off. I went in with my cane knife and, and did the same. So we got the Sangha out of the rock in which it was trapped and we came home with a, a basket of cassava and a sangha uh, tied to the stick and uh, we were carrying the stick. I was in front and then we saw people on the road coming back and they were obviously very impressed with the fish and the cassava. They said, oh, whoa, great, great, good, good harvesting, boys. Well done, well done, all, all that kind of thing. But then the stories uh, preceded us in, in, the, uh, in the village. By the time we got to the village, everybody known about the Sangha. So by the time we got home, the story was all over the place that uh, we had caught a, a big Sangha and the size was growing all the time. And the story that I heard coming back to the village was that when the Sangha was tied onto the stick we were carrying, the tail was reaching... Dragging on the ground? On the it? ground, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, enlargement of the story, yes. How quickly did that fish grow? It, it grew very quickly in a short time, and it's still growing. <laughs> I wonder what that tells you about, about myths and legends and well, how they that, get that's bigger and bigger. legends are built over time. There is just a story that reflected reality at the time. Then the story just multiplied, got richer and richer, bigger and bigger. And when you go back to Dravuni yes. and you hear this story, yes. do you say, well, actually, no, I was only a small child and the Trevally was about like a foot and a half long? Well, Do you say that or do you just let people keep I the... just let people uh, <laughs> enjoy the legend. <laughs> You're obviously part of a clan. Mm. Uh, how does the clan system work in Fiji? Well, in my village, for instance, the people in the village on, on Ravuni are part of a clan that also includes the villages from nearby Bulia. And Matusara is the name of the clan. And in Ravuni itself, 
We have subgroups called the Matangali. Then the sub, another subgrouping called the Tokotoka. And does your clan have a totem? Oh, we certainly have totems. Our bird totem is the kingfisher, uh, the Sedala uh, in Fijian. The tree totem is the Vesi. It's a hardwood. There's some Vesi underneath <laughs> this floor we're sitting on. And the fish is the turtle. So those are the totems. Are there, like, very specific diplomatic rituals when one clan meets with another clan? Uh, there are protocols, there are rituals that were very much respected in those days. Now people may not be that strict in the observation of those rituals, for instance. My mother, uh, for instance, was from Ono Island. So we have a, a special relationship, Nambuwalu, with the Nravuni people. When we have a, a feast together, the Nravuni people would not eat fish in the presence of uh, people from Nambualu. So, yes, there are certainly things that you ought to know relating from one clan with another. Can you be expelled from your clan or are you part of your clan for life? I believe and I've always believed that once you're born into a clan, uh, you remain there for life. There is uh, no way that anyone can take your belonging to that clan away from you. So I have my Vusa, I have my Matangali, I have my Tokotoka, and with those groupings come certain responsibilities uh, that one has to observe, for instance, uh, and they are part of your, your life, part of your nature, and they cannot be removed. One of the clan legends you tell is a story about a leader called Tunimata and his beautiful daughter, from the neighbouring island of Vanuakula. Yes. Can you tell me that story, please? It's a beautiful story, isn't it? <laughs> so, from Ravuni, you can see it, Vanuakula, clearly right in front there. And Tunimata was the chief of that island. And Tunimata had two children, and the princess, Ruluve, was very beautiful. And the words of mouth, you know, travel very quickly by canoes, obviously, <laughs> uh, in those days. And uh, her beauty spread past Fiji and just happened to get to Tonga. Uh, so the Tongan king got to hear about it and they wanted to take the princess, Luve, to marry the Tongan prince. So they sent over some Tongan warriors and they got to Vanuakula they were able to take hold of the princess. She couldn't protect herself, and the Tongan warriors put her in their canoe and, and sailed off. So at the time, the brother was out fishing, diving and all that. When, when he got back to Vunuakula, he realized that the sister was not there. So he went down to, to the demigod of Nkasaleka, who had the ability to find out uh, very quickly where the princess was. And how did he do that? Well, according to the legend, he got onto his boat, uh, which is a, a boat that grows tall. So he stood on the mast of the boat, and the, the mast grew up. He looked around the whole of Fiji, he couldn't see the princess. So he asked for the mast to grow further. And so uh, then he was able to look into Tonga, and he was able to see the princess there. And so 
he came back and relayed the story. The princess is in Tonga. So Tunimata asked for his help. And so these god from the Kasaleka and the son of Tunimata, they sailed to Tonga. And so they got to Tonga, they located the princess, and the first thing they did was to get something that the princess loved eating, yam. Then what the demigod from Nakasaleka did was to, to roll down the yam so that the princess could see it and realize when she saw it that there was help there because she loved the yam and she knew that only a friend or someone from the island would have brought that yam to her. And so she knew that there was help nearby. And so when help did come, finally, they rushed off and uh, got onto the boat and started their sail back to Fiji from Tonga. And uh, the Tongan obviously got to know about it and they sent the sea serpent to chase after the boat. Is this a giant sea serpent? Oh, a big giant, yes. (laughs) But they knew what was uh, going to happen and they had a a place there on the boat where they could uh, have a fireplace and they had a fire going and lots of rocks in there, and they were heating up the rocks to very, very white hot. So every time the giant sea serpent was coming up to grab hold of the boat, the prince would drop a hot white stone onto the mouth of this giant sea serpent until the eighth stone was chucked onto the mouth of the serpent, and that killed the serpent. But there were stones still left, and so when they got back to Ravuni, they left the hot stones on, on the beach there and got back the princess to Vunuakula. So that is the legend, uh, but it's much more than that. Uh, the legend then went on to explain why when you're making a lovo, uh, what is a lovo? A, a pit. A fire pit? Like for cooking, you mean? Yeah, yeah, for cooking. On Ravuni today, if you wanted to find good solid rocks for your lovo, you would go to this point and get the rocks from there because they knew then that um, if they got rocks from there, it wouldn't splinter because it had been fired. All those rocks had been fired already and they wouldn't splinter in the, in the lovo. So that, that's the reality today, and I suppose the legend was made up to explain that in, in some way so that people could understand why they were getting rocks from this point that do not splinter when heated. What is Vanuakula Island like today? Uh, it's vacant, but from Ravuni, it's just right in front. Uh, if you look across the lagoon, Vanuakula looks like an overturned canoe. And you could see the outline like that and a little hump. And that hump is the foundation of Tunimata's house. So you could see that. (laughs) The islands of Fiji sit on a tectonic formation that's known as the Ring of Fire. Yes. That creates these volcanic islands. Australia is known as being geologically stable. Yes. Fiji is not, which is why it's so dramatically beautiful here. Mm. When you were a boy or a young man growing up on Travuni, did you ever experience something like an earthquake or any other 
big natural phenomena like that? Well, the the biggest experience I had is in 1959. What happened in 1959? Well, I went back to the village for the school break, the end of the year, and um, one night there was a hurricane, a cyclone, and that blew all night. And so at dawn, the cyclone was kind of waning a little bit, so we came out of, the, of our various houses and uh, we were congregating in the village green there, assessing the problem. And then there was an earthquake and the earth just rumbled and moved. Then when we were all standing there, experiencing the tremor, we also heard the, the big noise from the sea and we knew what was happening there was a tsunami coming. The tidal wave was coming on and hitting onto the reef that made uh, such a big bang. And we heard that. So we rushed up to the mountains. So you have a cyclone, an earthquake, yes, and now a tsunami. All in one. Did you think it was the end of the world or something? Well, I, I mean, we were just terrified. And uh, to me, it was just to find safety. So... We all rushed up to the top of the hill, which is not far from the, the village site. And when we were up on the hill, we saw the waves coming onto the village. And the top of the waves was higher than the top of the houses and the coconut trees on the beach there. So they were just coming down, bang, big waves coming down, one after another. On air, online, and on the ABC Listen app. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. You can subscribe to the Conversations podcast. To find out more, just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. You were speaking before of a day in the 1950s when you were a boy, you came back to your island of Dravuni for the school holiday period, and it was a day when, first of all, the island was hit by a cyclone, and the following morning there was an earthquake, and from the earthquake came a tsunami, and then another tsunami that washed right over your island. What was left of the village you lived in? Was it completely destroyed? Uh, well, luckily, there was not much damage in terms of the structural part of the houses and all that. The biggest damage, as far as I can recall, was what was left when the waves went back to sea. We came down and there were volcanic rocks. They were all over the place. And dead fish. Volcanic rock from what? An undersea volcano? It would have been uh, undersea volcano. And we learned later that there was an earthquake along the coast near Chile there. Uh, and um, that was just the effect of it getting to Fiji at the time. 
right across the Pacific. Mm. But the mess, not so much structurally to the houses, but there were debris all over the place, layers and layers of volcanic rocks and dead fish. So we had to clear the rubbish away. We buried the dead fish and all the debris. And I remember I went back to our house, which was a wooden house at the time, and um, I went into the house and there were little pumice rocks all over the house. And they've come through the cracks in, on the floor. And the house was full of them. <laughs> you left your idyllic childhood, apart from the odd earthquake and tsunami, <laughs> <laughs> and Ravuni, yes. and went to high school yes. in Suva. What was that like for you as an island boy to go to big city Suva? Well, it was, was a big adventure. Dad had already got a job as a crew member in one of the ships. So he was away traveling. And so mum decided that it was time to move for better educational. So 1955, we all packed up and came to Suva. And we lived on Turek Road here. There's a Turek Road in Suva, uh, like uh, in Melbourne? Right. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> Named right. after the Turek right. in, in Melbourne, of course. That was a first introduction into urban life. <laughs> so then you went to university, got your degree and got a master's degree at ANU in Canberra and joined Fiji's diplomatic corps and you were posted to Northern Europe. Were there days when you were posted to those Northern European rainy cities like London and Brussels that you would dream of the sunshine and the sea of Dravuni Island. Oh, uh, yes, uh, the winter can be terrible out there. <laughs> uh, yes, it's interesting living in places like that and experiencing snow when growing up. Uh, you never knew about snow. and <laughs> It was all part of learning new things, uh, but you just manage your life as best as you can and, and move on. Where were you in 1987 when the first of the coups mm. in Fiji happened? I was in London at the time. We were there when the coup took place in 87. I was in the southern part of London. We were out there having a meeting with other diplomats. And Helen rang me and said, there is a coup in Fiji. And I said something which I should not repeat here. Uh, I said, no, 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 that cannot be right. <laughs> I think the reaction was like that in Australia too. It's like Fiji, yes. the most stable democracy yes. in the South Pacific, had a yes. coup. It, was, it came as a real shock in Australia. It, it really was a shock to me, and, and I couldn't believe it. But I turned on the television, and there it was, the coup. And that was quite worrying. We were part of the Commonwealth at the time. We got expelled from the Commonwealth, and we had to change the, the name of the office from a Fiji High Commission to a Fiji Embassy because... Uh, You're no longer in the Commonwealth. Not, yeah. No longer in the Commonwealth. But then it changes a lot of other things too. And um, we were worried about having invitation from Her Majesty the Queen at the time going, you know, for the annual garden party and all that. Uh, we would have to think twice whether the invitation was truly sent for us or uh, whether it was a mistake. That kind of thing. It, it really was a, a new kind of thinking. There are all sorts of reasons for why the coup happened, and it's complex, but, mm. but there's since been two more 
coups in quite, Fiji. Quite a few more, yes. Quite a few more. Mm. Do you think that that first coup introduced the idea of a coup? So once you have one, then maybe you can have another and then another. Do you think that's, yes. that's how it is? I think that you're right there. I mean, when the coup first took place, people didn't even know how to pronounce the word coup. It was a new name, it was a new concept, people didn't know, but it certainly created something that still reverberates today. You eventually returned to Fiji, worked in the private sector, and then became drawn into politics. How, how were you drawn into politics? Well, in 1998, we came back after 10 years in Brussels, uh, and I just went back to where I was uh, before, to the Fiji sugar marketing, and then the coup of 2000. That's the second coup. And I was invited to be part of the interim government. So I thought, well, it's an interim thing. Uh, I would go in uh, to help uh, the country. And by 2001, when the term of the interim government concluded and Prime Minister Garcia was wanting to come back to form a new party, I was persuaded to stand for parliament and became a member of parliament up to 2005. And you were foreign minister? I was foreign minister all the way from 2000. And when the election came around in 2005, 2006, I said to myself, well, that's enough for me. I have to move on. <laughs> things are more important things in life. Did you not enjoy politics? Uh, well, it's I did in job. many ways yes, because a... I think being a diplomat was a good training ground to being a politician. But by 2005, as a member of parliament, I thought, well, I've experienced that. That's enough for me. But Prime Minister Garase wanted me to stay on in cabinet. But I didn't stand for the next election, 2005. But Prime Minister Garase got me into the Senate and therefore qualified to sit in cabinet. So uh, there I was in 2006 until Badmarama came. The third coup. <laughs> uh, yes. So Fiji's had three coups, but it keeps returning to democracy each time. So I wonder how you see it. Do you think Fiji's a country that's prone to having a lot of coups or is it a country that keeps coming back to democracy? Well, people have tried to explain why we have so many coups. And, and I think it, it goes back to the fact that for a small country, the military is too big. It's a huge military setup for a small country. And the tradition as well, the values that people put into being a soldier and uh, being in the military. My grandfather was a soldier. He participated in the First World War in Europe. My father was also a soldier. Didn't fight, but part of the protection unit that looked after Fiji at the time. My brother was also a soldier. So uh, soldiering is in, in the family. I didn't wish to be a soldier. I, I remained out of it. But I think for a small country, the military is too big. This might be a silly question, but how does Fiji benefit from its military? I mean, you're not really an endangered invasion from Tonga, are you? No. <laughs> <laughs> or Samoa or somewhere like that. So yes. is the military there to defend Fiji or is it there so Fiji can participate in international military coalitions and earn, I don't know, influence that yes. way? I, I think it's part of the, the British tradition that came in and uh, created the country like the Sandhurst military culture of Britain? Well, this kind of thing. And um, the early chiefs, uh, particularly Ratskuna, for instance, he is known to have said that 
to be a Fijian and to be a person of some integrity, you've got to shed blood uh, as a soldier. So it's that kind of uh, attitude. So that speaks to some very old traditions, do you think, in Fiji? Uh, it, it's old tradition. The old warrior culture? Uh, uh, well, certainly that. A bit of traditional culture and British culture mixed up to create the kind of military setup that we have today. We have talked about creating new roles for the military, for instance, some developmental work in outer rural areas, for instance. That has been talked about, hasn't come to much uh, in years past. But now people can justify having a military by the fact that we participate in peacekeeping. But you may have read recently that it's too expensive for Fiji. <laughs> a lot of the costs are borne by the Fiji government and we haven't been reimbursed by the UN. So <laughs> yes. Fijian soldiers do have this reputation mm. for being exceptionally good men-at-arms. There's a Victoria Cross winner that participated in World War II. There's, there's a very powerful reputation there. Well, yes, I think it's because of, as you said, the past and the warrior um, race that we were at one time and then mixed in with the British military tradition and, and that has all contributed to what our military is today. A lot of the time, the politics behind the coups that have happened have been about political tensions between ethnic Fijians and uh, Fijian Indian people who have been here for several centuries now, I think, and other groups in Fijian society. I can't help but notice, like I was watching the news last night about the coalition government just trying harder to talk to each other again. It feels like you have to keep coming back to democracy because democracy is the worst form of government apart from all of the others that have been tried from time to time. Yeah. Man, that really seems to apply to Fiji, doesn't it? <laughs> well, it's the only one that can work, I think. <laughs> the, well, uh, Fiji obviously has, through the coups that we have had, introduced the other aspects of politics, but they are not the kind of politics that we should nurture for Fiji, uh, given the, the mix of... Uh, population that we have and I think democracy is is the way to go and we have tried that over the years we have failed as well but as Churchill said yeah it's the worst kind of uh, politics but it's the only one that we know that works. Here's my question like again and I don't know if there's an answer to it so is Fiji a place that keeps having coups or a place that keeps coming back to democracy primarily? Do you sense it's the temperament of the Isle of, P of Fijians right across the board is democratic? Uh, we have to work on being democratic and I think that is the big big task for us and not only in terms of the way we talk about things. We, we have got to have policies and everything in place just to allow democracy to work. And uh, I'm sure when it works, and it works uh, well, we will be stuck with it, hopefully. The most violent of the coups was the one in 2000. Hostages were taken, shots were fired at the coup leader, George Spate. But Compared to places like South and Central America, for example, the coups in Fiji aren't particularly violent. There aren't huge groups of people being marched into courtyards and shot willy-nilly. There's nothing really like that in Fiji. Well, there are no arms uh, present in, in the public. There are a lot of talks and shouting and 
but violence and, and shooting and all that, it's unnatural, I think, uh, foreign in Fiji's context. Like anywhere else, Fiji's not without its problems mm. in community relations, with the economy and all sorts of things. But nonetheless, it seems to be a good society here. Is it right to say that? It is, you know, given the mix that we have. Uh, that can only enrich the country and the culture that we have. We just have to work hard at it to make it work and to stick. It's a beautiful country here and we have an interesting history. Just a, a matter of trying to make democracy work and I'm sure we will find the formula to make it work and when it works, Fiji is the place to be. I suppose there'd be people who would want Fiji to be like Singapore, a very modern, wealthy, prosperous place. But when Singapore became modern Singapore, it lost a lot of tradition, it lost its kampung lifestyle that was really rich. As Fiji modernises, and I know you wanted to modernise, but do you, do you risk losing that village life, the village traditions that you love so much? Well, we have tried to be the Singapore in the Pacific. And uh, if you go back into our history, political history, we've wanted to be the Mauritius in the Pacific, but uh, it hasn't worked out. You can be the Fiji of the Pacific, though. If well, you, if you... why not? <laughs> uh, and, and we just have to create our own environment here and, and be what Fiji ought to be uh, to the rest of the world. Uh, so, Do you uh, worry, though, you will lose those village traditions that you and village stories, that village way of life you love? I think they make the Fiji life richer and when it weaves into modern politics it makes life interesting and not only interesting but more meaningful people are growing up they know that they are part of a little village or a little place they belong here and once you were born a Fijian you are permanently belonging to that country and no one can take that away the mix of ethnicities is another plus. We just have to work hard at it to, to make it work. I suppose my question was, though, as Fiji modernises, as many countries do, you lose the old ways. And it seems like it's a sacrifice that yes. modernity demands that you lose the old ways. As younger people get attracted to the city, they want to leave the village just as you did once. Well, that will, will happen. Eh? Uh, I think the more we modernise, the more we tend to be distant from tradition and, and our culture, but we are aware of the fact that our tradition and culture make us strong. Yes, we want to be democratic, we want to be the Singapore in the Pacific, but at the same time, respecting and giving values to the tradition that we have, because I think that makes the country richer. There's dignity in it too. There's dignity in all this. And when you have dignity with respect, it creates a better community for the future. Uh, and we just have to weave in the democratic principle around those. And we can only create a stronger polity in the, in the future. You know when you told that story before the legend of the princess and the boat being chased by a giant sea yes. serpent? Again, it blew my mind because 
There's a Viking story just like that too. Okay. There's a giant sea serpent in Viking stories once yes. again. A big difference between, I don't want to draw a comparison too close because it's, it's too different, but yes. the Vikings had a terrible time converting to Christianity. It created terrible tensions. Mm. But Fiji seems to have embraced Christianity. Have I got that right or, is, or am I missing something there? That would be right. In the 1830s, Christianity came from Tonga to Fiji and it just spread in the whole of Fiji. And the life that we have created for ourselves today has weaved around the values of Christianity uh, to build the society that we have. It goes back to what we are traditionally, that we can weave in the, the stories about the legends and the Christianity and tradition in a way we can create some unity and live under that. And to me, that's probably the way that we should try to strive to be. Weave all those facts into a unity and we should be able to create a community, a society that is uh, good. We can look forward to that in the future. Why do you think Fiji took on Christianity so quickly? Well, if you read the history of Fiji, it's the chiefly system, eh? Once the chief is converted, and then the chief just put out an order, we all are Christians. So that's how the chiefly system worked in those days. The chief is really the chief of the people. So the chief has the responsibility to look after the people, and if he looks after the people, the people will respect the chief. When the chief says something, everybody will follow suit. We're sitting here on the balcony of your house in Suva. And how often do you get to return to Dravuni Island where you were born and grew up? Not very often, I'm afraid. <laughs> the last time I went to the village was 2016. And that was when Helen and I took our daughter, Emma, and her daughter. We went to the village and that's when we recorded the legend of Tanovan Tautaumolao. That was in 2016. It was a trip that Emma wanted to do. We went to the village and recorded the, me telling the story of uh, Tanovan Tautaumolao. Who were you telling the story to? To the children. Fantastic. Yes, uh, in 2016. And that was part of Emma's project leading up to a gallery exhibition in Auckland the Maritime Museum. And did that make you happy, telling those stories to kids on Dravuni Island? Well, I was happy to be telling the story, but I was not happy when I realised that when I asked the kids, the children, uh, have you heard this story from your parents or from your other relatives? And nobody had heard that legend of Tanov and Totomolao before. So they were hearing it for the first time from me. <laughs> Kaliopate, it's been wonderful speaking with you and thank you so much for having us in your home and speaking with me today. You're most welcome, Richard and Maggie. Nice to see you.
That right there is Fiji's Rugby Sevens team, a team that in a country that's so obsessed with Rugby Sevens, they've issued, and I'm not kidding, a $7 note in honour of their Olympic Rugby Sevens team. That is the team singing a beautiful Fijian hymn called Noku Masu. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. been listening to a podcast of conversations with Richard Feidler. For more conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Konamaori. I'm Bobby McCumber the host of a brand new podcast from ABC Radio Australia called Stories from the Pacific. The tradition of storytelling is such a huge part of life in the Pacific. Stories connect generations. Dad and I really had to learn how to be father and son. Bridge political differences. Sports can be like soft diplomacy. Record histories. It's a repetitive pattern of a man marrying and divorcing and then marrying again, divorcing. And create community. There was never a moment I felt like I didn't have the support system. Stories from the Pacific draws you deep into the lives of Pacific Islanders who have seen and done amazing things. You can find Stories from the Pacific every week on your favourite podcast app or the ABC Pacific website.